you may have realized that being healthy feels different than it did in the past now that you're over 50. If you want to maximize your health potential but don't have time to read through overwhelming pages of Google links, this is the show for you. Welcome to Healthy Tips After 50. We love doing the research, finding solutions, talking to health experts, and learning what works and what doesn't. Now, your host. She spent the last 25 years dedicated to feeling her best and is here to share her best findings with you, Susan Rosen. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Susan Rosen. This is my third podcast in the series I'm doing related to the brain. Today's show is about food and diet and how they relate positively and negatively with the brain to each other. I'm going to start with one of my favorite subjects, the Mediterranean diet. And I'm using that as a starting point because it is really more than just a diet. It's a way of approaching healthy eating and it has been shown to be supportive of your brain, heart, vascular system, and your gut microbiome. Your gut microbiome are the bacteria and microorganisms living in your digestive tract. The microbiome sends messages up to your brain, and then the brain answers those messages. But let's be clear here, the gut microbiome is the one in charge in this exchange of information, sending more than 1,000 messages to every one that the brain sends. The Mediterranean diet is a mostly plant-based diet, which is what most experts like to recommend. It includes vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts, legumes, better known as beans, olive oil, and some cheese, yogurt, fish, and poultry. There's a very limited amount of red meat used almost more like a garnish rather than the main ingredient that makes up the Western diet. Plus, you can have a daily glass of red wine. Can't forget that part. The reason I started this discussion with this particular diet is because after looking at many different sources and suggestions for brain-boosting foods, almost all of them are a part of this diet. So to start out, there was an observational study that came out earlier this year, which tracked 921 men and women for three to nine years, seeing if there was any relationship or relation between flavanols in foods and the development of Alzheimer's. And they used yearly cognitive and memory tests along with in-person medical exams to see if any of the participants in the study showed any signs of Alzheimer's. The people in the study also filled out annual food questionnaires about what they had been eating during the preceding year. The study leaders then adjusted the results for levels of exercise, education, mentally stimulating activities, which we all know are good for you, and the APOE4 gene, which is related to a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's later in life. After doing all of that, they found that those people who ate at least 15.3 milligrams of flavanols per day had the lowest risk for Alzheimer's. So 15.3 milligrams of flavanols is about the amount that's in a half cup of berries, a serving of cooked vegetables, or even a small leafy green salad. That's not really very much of this that you have to eat. And I think that most of us probably eat at least that, if not more, every day. I know I do. So if you need any extra reason to eat your veggies and fruits, 
Now you have it. There is currently a longer term randomized controlled study going on that is looking at diet, exercise, brain stimulating activities, and other variables again, to see if they can show an actual cause and effect this time from these things on brain health. And other studies are also being designed by other people. Flavanols are the compounds found in many fruits, vegetables, spices, and other items. And some of the most popular are leafy greens, almonds, apples, blueberries, broccoli, black and kidney beans, asparagus, raisins, kale, onions, Chinese and red cabbage, sun-dried tomatoes and tomato paste, spinach, salsa, and radicchio, just to name actually more than just a few. And I almost forgot to mention tea, olive oil, and of course, red wine. All things that are plentiful in the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet which are the two most recommended diets for good health and maintaining a good weight. We all know how good these foods are for us. And now there's an even more important reason to eat a lot of them every day. So there was also a 2017 meta-analysis of studies covering more than 31,000 people that found that eating more fruits and vegetables can help protect against mild cognitive impairment. And the diets of people in the study with normal cognition were found to have more vitamin C, vitamin B6, and carotenoid, which are all in fruits and vegetables. A 2012 study on the negative side, kind of turning it around, found that eating higher levels of saturated fats was associated with declining verbal memory and other measures of cognitive health. So that's something else I know that we've all been learning over the last few years. To move on to another area of brain food, a lot of the foods that are best for your brain are also good for your heart and your blood vessels, better known as your vascular system. And that shouldn't be surprising. Medical News Today listed the following foods as being best for memory, concentration, and brain health. So those were oily fish. So some of those could be salmon or sardines, dark chocolate, berries, nuts and seeds, whole grains, coffee, avocados, peanuts, eggs, broccoli, kale, and soy products. Healthline.com had their own list, which had all of those products, plus turmeric, green tea, and oranges. A vegetarian diet, which a lot of people have studied, has been linked to a lower risk of stroke and stroke-related dementia, according to a study in neurology. The study involved more than 13,000 people, consisting of both vegetarians and non-vegetarians. And none of the people had any stroke history at the start of the study, but they were all over 50 years old. The study followed one group of 5,000 people, for six years and another group of 8,000 for nine years. The vegetarians didn't eat meat or fish and had less dairy than the non-vegetarian. The study leaders adjusted for age, sex, smoking, and other health conditions like diabetes and hypertension. And they found when they looked at the groups that the vegetarians in the first group had a 74% lower risk of ischemic stroke. That's where a blockage in an artery supplying blood to the brain causes a stroke. And the second group had a 60% lower risk in the vegetarian group. That's a big difference. And those kind of strokes are 
getting to be a little more common in our population, at least. There's a study from China that found that people over 55 who ate more than 1.76 ounces of chili on a daily basis had double the normal memory decline and poor cognition over the 15 years of that study. And then on the positive side, there's a study in the U.S. that found that regular chili consumption could reduce mortality risk by 12%. So it's so interesting there are all these different studies and you can see where some of them are finding some of the same things and other ones, depending on what they look at and who they look at, it changes. And so like with this, you find where the people eating the chili have more memory decline. And yet another study finds that they're actually living longer. I don't know. The human body is pretty amazing. There's another study I found that was published in the International Journal of Public Health that found an association between a high consumption of fruits and vegetables and a lower incidence of memory loss and heart disease, which of course can affect your brain health. The same study also found that it was important for older people, <coughs> sorry, to get about 30 to 35% of their daily calories from protein, assuming they don't have a health condition where they need to keep their protein levels lower, something like kidney or liver disease. People aren't supposed to eat a lot of protein. Whole grains are also important for older people as we need to get more fiber into our digestive system and into our microbiome, which we already talked about. There are some other interesting studies specifically relating to overeating, brain triggers, and responses. They have seen similarities in the brain activity patterns between people who abuse alcohol and drugs and overweight people whose overeating has an addictive quality to it. And the researchers have found opioid receptors for both opioid addiction and food addiction and obesity. And all of this has led them to start looking at using the same types of treatments for obesity that are now being used for opioid addiction. There was another study I saw that used cognitive behavioral therapy, which is again, having to do with your brain, to help adolescents learn how to control their reactions to food. In essence, to not overeat or have cravings for particular foods which then allowed them to lose weight and improve their overall health. So it's not just that how food affects your brain, it's also how your brain can help you in eating a more healthy diet. So there's a lot of new brain research that's currently going on in some other areas related to helping overweight and obese people control their eating habits. They're identifying brain-related physical and chemical origins for overeating that hopefully, I hope, that it'll take away some of the stigma, and I think they are too, some of the stigma that's attached to it. It is being proven that for some people, it isn't just a matter of willpower or an emotional component, but instead can be controlled through other brain-related solutions. So some of these other strategies that they're trying to use to help people to eat less are to eat slowly. So your chewing and stomach systems have time to send what are called satiety 
signals known as gut hormone peptides to your brain telling it that you can now stop eating because you're full. Most of us eat our food quickly and we end up eating more than we need to because those signals haven't been sent due to timing rather than actual feeling full because it usually takes at least 20 minutes from the time you start eating until those signals go up to your brain to, and you look at it and go, oh, I think I'm full now. One last area of eating that can affect your brain that I'm going to cover is how you eat. In other words, do you like to eat two to three meals a day or do you like to snack and have small meals? Everyone is different and there's no right way. What is most important for everyone is to keep your energy levels balanced throughout the day. If you like to eat as soon as you get up, then that's when you should do it. If that's how you feel better. If you like to wait until lunchtime to eat, for instance, if you like the intermittent fasting schedule best, then do that. Figure out what works best for your body and your brain in particular. One thing that every health professional agrees on is that we shouldn't eat a large heavy meal too close to bedtime because your body will not have time to digest all of the food and that can interfere with your sleep. Personally, I do kind of a modified intermittent fasting schedule. I eat my breakfast around lunchtime. I have kind of a small lunch in the mid-afternoon and dinner usually between 6 and 8.30 p.m., depending. And that depending has to do with whether I am fixing my own dinner just for me or am I fixing it for me and my husband because usually those are a little more elaborate so it takes me a little while longer and he likes to eat a little bit later because he goes to bed even later than I do. I find for myself that if I don't eat anything for more than four to five hours during the day or evening I guess that I get very tired, my brain gets foggy and I'm kind of a crab. My husband always says, do I need to feed you? That's when I have to go and eat something with some sugar in it, typically like a piece of fruit, not a candy. And it's pretty predictable. I'm sure it's not good for my brain to do it very often. And so I try hard not to have it happen very often. Also because of my energy goes way, way down. And so I stop being productive as well. So in kind of summarizing all of this in this podcast, in the area of food and the brain, it's very important that you be conscious of what you're eating, when you're eating it, and how you feel after you eat it. If you feel like you're stuffed, it's probably because you are. <clears throat> and if you do that often, then I would bet that your clothes don't fit you as well as they did before. Or maybe you're having some physical or emotional issues, which is why you're eating more. Or maybe you're just eating too fast and you're not getting that signal that's telling you that you have had enough and you really don't need any more. As with all other areas of health, it's so important that you use your brain as well to monitor and check in with your body to maintain your own personal health. And as an overall comment at the end of this podcast here, I think that there's enough evidence to support eating a diet full of fish, fruit, vegetables, and whole grains, along with coffee, tea, and red wine in order to maintain our memories and our brain health as we age. I always love it when the science supports good tasting food and of course the way I'm already eating. I saw a quote in the Massachusetts General Hospital newsletter from Dr. Nadu, who said that, quote, 
a combination of healthy eating, good hydration, drinking enough water every day, and some form of regular movement and exercise that you enjoy are the pillars of optimal brain and heart health. Can't say it better than that. Let me know in the comments, wherever you're listening to this podcast, what kind of diet you eat, and if you do regular exercise as well to make sure that all that your brain stays healthy. Next week, I'm going to have a special guest interview with a fellow coach to talk about how we should be dealing with all of the stress and changes to our lives that we are living through right now. Be sure to listen in, and I'm going to try and post the video part of it in YouTube instead of just the audio there, which will be a little bit of a change for me. Keep your fingers crossed that it works. This should be a really, really interesting podcast next week, and I hope that you'll all be able to listen in. As always, remember that I'm not a doctor and whatever I talk about on this podcast should not be construed as medical advice. If you are having a medical issue, please go and talk to your own doctor or go to the emergency if it is an emergency. As I said before, please like and leave me a comment wherever you listen to the show on Apple, Google, Stitcher, so on and so forth, or on my website, healthytipsafter50.com, or on Facebook. I am everywhere. Let me know what you like about the show and any tips that you found that really helps you in maintaining good health. I do look forward to hearing from you and be assured that I do read all of the comments I receive when I find out about them. Just want to remind everybody that there is a free ebook on my website. If you're looking for additional healthy tips, you just have to sign up on the website and then you will be able to get the um, ebook emailed to you. And that's it, I think, everybody, for today's show. I hope that you are having a good week and that everyone is doing okay under this lockdown or partial lockdown, depending on where you are. I will look forward to talking to all of you next week. This has been Healthy Tips After 50 with Susan Rosen. To stay on the cutting edge of the most effective health strategies, subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you thought of the show with a comment or like on iTunes. Visit healthytipsafter50.com for this episode's show notes, more resources, and free offers.